Welcome to the Breadcrumb Trails podcast. I'm Gina. I'm Amy. And I'm Carol. And we're talking today with Jenna Pruden, who is an award-winning feature writer at the Globe and Mail. You can find all of our social media links at linktree slash podcast. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash podcast. If you like the content we put out, you can also now support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash trailblazermedia. That's patreon.com slash trailblazermedia. Go check it out if you like the content we put out and consider supporting us. We're talking today with Jenna Pruden, who is an award-winning feature writer at The Globe and Mail. She's the former crime bureau chief of the Edmonton Journal and previously worked at the Regina Leader Post, the Medicine Hat News, the Prairie Post, the Interlake Spectre as well. She's a sessional journalism instructor at McEwen University and a presenter at Pandemic University Pop-Up School of Writing. Thank you for joining us, Jana. I thoroughly appreciate you taking some time to chat with us tonight. It is our pleasure to have you. Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? What got you into journalism and writing? Well, it was actually on a travel. (laughs) I went to art school. I never thought that I would be a journalist, um, which is a little bit funny at the Globe and Mail. And throughout my career, I've worked with many people who have these very noble journalism backstories where they, you know, started dreaming about being a journalist when they were nine years old and started a paper on their block. That was not me at all. So I went to art school and I thought that I would be a photographer, an art photographer, and maybe a fashion photographer. And when I graduated from university, I moved to Montreal and I was an assistant to a commercial photographer. And I realized very quickly that was not going to be the job for me. So uh, my mother had ended up around that time moving to Egypt. She's a nurse and she worked with um, children who had cancer. So she was moving to Egypt to work at a charity hospital. So I uh, went to stay with her for several months and sort of figure out what to do with my life. And so it was sort of on the the end of that trip and I was uh, on my way back from, I believe, oh, Alexandria to Cairo. And I had my little, you know, Discman. It was the olden days. So I had a Discman and a bunch of discs, including um, a CD that I had bought at a market because I'd been there so many months, I got sick of all the music I took. So I had bought this Hits of the 70s CD at a market. So I was, I remember the exact moment I was on the bus and I was looking out the window at the desert and I I was listening to this song about a war correspondent and I just had this epiphany that I was going to be a war correspondent. And so when I got back to Winnipeg, where I'm from, I called up and like I had never read a newspaper in my life. I had never, you know, I was not one of those people that was really engaged with news. And I called up the Reuters uh, news agency head office and I didn't even think to ask for anyone, just whoever it was who answered the phone. I said, I want to be a reporter, but I don't want to go to school. What should I do? And they said, well, see if you can talk your way into a job at a small paper and work your way up. And uh, when you read my bio, you will uh, know that that's exactly what I did. I talked my way into a job at the Interlake Spectator in rural Manitoba and how I got that job with no clippings and no experience is kind of a story onto itself. And then I worked there for a couple of years and then the Medicine Hat News and the Regina Leader Post. And it was about, I think about 12 years into my career when I heard the song on the radio and realized that I had 
actually misheard the song lyric. It was not about a war correspondent at all. Uh, it was about a poor correspondent, like a bad correspondent. Oh. Uh, so yeah, I literally based my whole adult life on a misheard song lyric. <laughs> That's the truth. Wow, that is a hell of a story. <laughs> I guess it's funny the way life works out sometimes, eh? It does. I feel like it was for the best, you know? I feel like it was kind of meant to be. And it's funny because when I did talk my way into this job and I, you know, not a lot of people want to move to Lundar, Manitoba, where I would be the Highway 6 reporter um, reporting on Highway 6 from St. Laurent to the Dolphin River First Nation. My colleagues were, you know, a couple hours away in every direction. So, and it all happened really fast and I like, you know, agreed to take the job and I found a house to rent and I at some point in there had this moment of dread panic where I was like oh my god what am I gonna do like I'm really gonna move to the country by myself in the middle of nowhere I'd never even lived outside of a downtown like I was very urban kind of person and um, then I got assigned my phone number a landline in those days and um, I was driving in the car I, I had the piece of paper from the phone company and I saw the number 7625262 and I started thinking about you know I like how phone numbers spell things and I actually stopped at a phone booth again in those days there wasn't really cell phones this is 1998 or so I didn't have a cell phone <laughs> Um, and I went, I ran to the payphone and I saw that 5262 spells JANA. So I had been randomly assigned a phone number that was 762 JANA. And then I figured, okay, well, it's meant to be. I'll just uh, go, you know, live in Lendar and see what happens. I love it. Is there anything you would have changed differently if you could? No. You know, I think, I think in my whole life, even mistakes that I made, hopefully I've learned from them and uh, no, there's nothing I would have done differently, but it would be nice to be able to go back and tell yourself, you know what, like, it'll be okay. <laughs> you don't, you know, there was a couple of sleepless nights, maybe I would have liked to save myself, but other than that, no. <laughs> so as a reporter for the Globe and Mail and as a journalist that has had a fairly decent career uh, writing and whatnot, how much do you travel for work? Like, what, what does that look like for you? Yeah, I mean, it has depended on what paper I've been at and also what kind of uh, beat or stories I was assigned to. When I, ironically, my first job at the Interlake Spectator, I was on the road constantly because I covered a highway. So, um, you know, I was on the road nonstop. It would be nothing to drive three hours for a council meeting in a rural municipality or another two hours to do a feature about an artist or something. In Regina, I covered a lot of court and crime. So there, I typically was in court most of the time. But I have throughout my career done a lot of breaking news or tended to help out on sort of big breaking stories. Um, much of the time, if I get sent somewhere, it's because something horrible has happened in that place. <laughs> I always laugh that it's, you know, it's not usually good news if I show up. I think I've done, a couple times I've gone to places for, um, to do features or I've done like the odd travel piece very, very rarely. But most of the time uh, I go places either when there's a disaster um, or say, you know, a huge like breaking crime event or if I'm doing a feature about a disaster or a big breaking crime event. Or uh, uh, what sort of important lessons have you learned throughout your career? In regard to travel specifically or just in general? 
we'll start with travel and go in general. So I'd say um, in terms of the travel that I do sometimes for my work, it's really to be prepared because in some on some occasions I've gotten sent to things. It's like you leave now. So one time that I think of that really sticks out to me was when I worked at the Edmonton Journal and I was on a late shift on the, the police desk. I was like just finishing up to go home. Maybe it was 1030 at night and I was wearing the most uncomfortable pants and I had actually thought you know I hate these pants so much I'm never wearing them again when I get home I'm like putting them in a bag for the Salvation Army and that's it and then uh, we heard on the scanners that there had been a shooting and some RCMP officers were shot and there was a manhunt and so I ended up it was like minus a million um so I like run out the door and I did have a little kind of you know a bag with like batteries and an extra notebook things like that uh, me and the photographer heading out into the middle of nowhere uh, chasing this story and I ended up wearing those pants for three straight days um, because I didn't come home until the weekend when another reporter was sent out there and they were the most uncomfortable days of my life and my go bag got a lot better after that because I realized like okay you need something to sleep in I didn't you know, I was wearing mm -hmm. the same shirt, um, like washing your socks in the sink, things like that. Same with Slave Lake. Um, when I covered the Slave Lake fires, I thought I would be there for, I think like three days originally or something. I thought, you know, I'm going to be smart and I'm going to prepare for like five days. <laughs> And I think I was there, I, I don't, it all is a blur, but I think about two weeks and you know, no stores are open. It's a disaster zone. You're working from like four in the morning till two in the morning. Like there's no time anyway, but you can't get anything. And so, um, you know, having some clothes, <laughs> things to wear, um, things for it being like hot and cold, um, a bandana to tie around my face um, for a mask for the smoke. That was a big thing I learned there. Um, and then things even like cliff bars or you know there's times we'd get back to the hotel nothing's open there's literally nowhere to get food you haven't eaten all day so in the years after when I worked at the cop desk I had a very big go bag that was full of like <laughs> everything that I needed to survive for a couple of weeks and um, you know, last summer I got sent again, very spur of the moment to Northern BC um, when those two young men had killed three people in, in uh, Northern BC and the Yukon and they were on the run. So again, like super isolated. Um, most of the time you're at, out of cell service, you have, you know, uh, so my suitcases when I went were really like full of, you know, cliff bars, big container for water, every power cord imaginable, notebooks, pencils, just all, all of that and uh, and no no uncomfortable pants. Those pants end up getting rid of them as soon as I got back to Edmonton and yeah, rest in peace those gray itchy wool pants. They were really high-waisted and wool and I was just so itchy the entire time. That shooting that you were talking about wouldn't happen to be the Maythorpe shooting, was it? No, that was, um, I got here a few years after Mayor Thorpe, so I covered the inquiry. Uh, it was a shooting in um, Sedgwick Killam. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and um, there was a, a man, they shot at 
some RCMP officers. Two RCMP officers were shot but not killed. The uncle in the scenario was killed in the shooting. And then there was another man who was on the run who was ultimately found and charged. And I can't remember offhand what happened with his case. In all the stories that you've covered, which one was your one that sticks out in your memory that you go, you know, that was a great learning experience for me? You know, I think every, I think that about every story I've covered. I really do because each one, you know, has so many, has different challenges to it. You know, in some cases, maybe there's a challenge, no one will talk to you, or there's a challenge. Um, you know, I did a story this year that I covered a very long court case. And in the writing that story, it was an organizational challenge for me of how to structure the story. Sometimes earlier in my career, when I got sent to lots of, I don't want to say boring things, but like, you know, if you're working at a smaller paper, you're working on a Sunday. Sometimes there's nothing really going on in Regina on a Sunday in like, you know, April. And so you'll get sent to something that's not necessarily the most exciting event in the world and how to turn that into a good story. Because in a way, you know, if you go to a fire, it's a very dramatic, you know, everyone you talk to is like, gives you great quotes. Like it, there's tons of color, but going to, you know, an aquarium show that has a pretty low turnout and still needing to get a good story from it, that can be very challenging. So I really do think, you know, I always encourage young reporters to be open to what every story can teach you and what every kind of writing can teach you. And um, I'm not sure there's, there's one that's taught me more than all the rest. They're all you know, part of my <laughs> part of my experience now. A valuable piece of advice, one of my um, former bosses, when people applied for a job with him, uh, this was at the MedicineNet News. So he'd get like a resume or job application and then he'd call them up or send them an email or something a few weeks later and he would say, send me everything you wrote yesterday. And I always kept that in mind of like, you know, what if someone did that to me and yesterday I covered something really lame? Would I still be able to send them a story that I was proud of and that, you know, was a good read, even if it wasn't on the most exciting situation in the world. So that's how I've always tried to operate, I guess. So I have a question. I just want to tie back here in a moment. You mentioned your to-go bag, and I know that you, as my instructor at McEwen, you have, you've talked about this a couple of times, and it just kind of piqued my interest. Other than the necessities, like your pens, your pa uh, sorry, your pencils, your paper, your cliff bars, your clothes, what all do you keep in your to-go bag? Especially when I was at the journal, like now I work from home for the globe, even before the pandemic, you know, here I could quickly run around and gather things. At the journal, I was leaving straight from the journal. You'd have no time to come home on a big story. So yeah, all of the things for, you know, for writing. Um, also, okay, this sounds dumb, but like a little shampoo and face cream, like facial moisturizer. And that's not a big deal for everybody. But if you think about the shampoo and soap, that was available at the Sedgwick Motor Lodge or the Killer Motor Lodge. Like if something like moisturized hands is important to you, then you need a little bit of cream. So I had that um, makeup remover too. So you don't wake up and you're like, you know, a mess if you wear makeup. Um, also things for heat and cold. And that may sound sort of self-evident, but I've seen reporters get burned to a crisp 
standing, you know, at a scene in the sun in the middle of summer. So like in the summer, I always have a hat. I always have sunscreen and water. Um, and then in the winter, like really having snow pants, a balaclava, like I have in my to-go kit at the journal, I could go stand outside of minus 40 for like three hours and I could go stand outside in plus 40 for three hours. I'm like prepared for any of those things because it can really happen. And especially if you're in the middle of nowhere, you can't just like drive an hour to buy some water or drive an hour to buy some sunscreen and um, really like survival, <laughs> survival supplies. I think those are the main, <laughs> those are the main things. Thank you. I've been curious about that for a while now. I think we all were. Yeah, I, the one at the journal, my like big bag had long long johns in it, snow pants, big sweatshirt. Ex every time I'd get like, you know, sometimes you'd get a t-shirt at something like some massive extra, extra, extra large t-shirt in the bag because you can use that as a layer or to sleep in or <laughs> boots, extra boots. So where... <sighs> I guess when you're traveling, obviously with your current position, you are not exactly called if things are going smoothly. You're you're not called in to write a, to write a piece if things are going great for people. What is that like for you? How does that impact you? And I guess more importantly, how does that impact your mental health? Right. So I mean, sometimes just to be clear, sometimes I might get sent to something. Um, you know, I got sent to Saskatchewan to do a piece about Manitou Beach a couple of years ago, or I may go. I may travel. Last summer, I went to Calgary to. To, um, hang out with Coulter Wall, this country musician, to write a profile of him. So some, sometimes I do travel for non-disaster purposes, but on other occasions I am sent places um, when things are going poorly. So it's an it's an interesting thing to arrive in a community when there is something really traumatic happening, and I, I think there's a lot to think about as an outsider coming into a community that's been affected by something. Um, and I think you know more and more we're thinking and talking about trauma-informed reporting. But even before that was sort of a term in the conversation, uh, hopefully just as a person, you realize when I show up in, in a town and something bad has happened there, you know, people are very affected by it, small communities. And I think this is where it really benefited me from uh, to have lived in a small community is you see how connected everyone is and also how sometimes it's annoying when an outsider come, like, comes in from the big city and thinks they're whatever. <laughs> Um, so I really, um, you know, I always try to be really cognizant of that. There often is a point, depending on what the situation is, there's often a point, you know, people will talk to you at first and, and are really open and people often really want to share what the experience has meant. Say if it's a, a fire, you know, they want to share the way they're feeling and what they've lost and, and things about their community or how their community is coming together. There often is a point, a little period in where people get really sick of the media being around and can get pretty hostile to you. So I think I just really try to think about what people are going through and be aware of what people are going through. And of course, always remembering that this isn't just a story <laughs> to them, it's their lives and it's real people and real communities and real devastation. And the longer that you cover these things, you also realize, you know, a murder in a small town in 1970 will still have ripples today. They're not things that end two weeks or a week later when the media clears out. You know, in terms of my own mental health, I really believe in the importance of these stories. I think it's a real privilege to be able to share people's experiences 
experiences and stories. I'm extremely grateful when people, um, you know, share their story with me, especially after something so difficult. And so I, that, that actually is part of like how I process it is that I believe in it and I think it can help and I hope it can help. Um, there are times, <laughs> back to the Sedgwick Killam trip with the uncomfortable pants. That was a crazy few days. And one of the other things that happened there is I, uh, so I was in the middle of nowhere um, by myself. You know, it was a really scary, intense situation. I'm wearing really uncomfortable pants and uh, there's no cell, cell service was really spotty. So at one spot I got cell service I had to call my editor so I got out of the I had the this journal Edmonton journal van I got out and I have like you know my notebook and, and the cell phone and like a pen and all this stuff and I swear all of a sudden there was a dog like a little shih tzu running by on the ground and to not step on it I kind of stumbled against the door of the van and I caught my thumb in the van so I'm standing there, I'm in the middle of a like emptiness and my, my thumb is not just closed in the door, but the door is locked. And um, I really thought that I had cut my thumb off, like, cause it felt, it didn't hurt, but it felt like profoundly wrong, <laughs> is what I would say. Um, so the keys were in my right hip pocket. My right thumb is stuck. So I was like, okay, I have to get the keys with my left hand. I'm right-handed, so I have to be really careful. I have to pull the keys out of my right pocket. Then I have to open the door. If my thumb has been cut off, which I was pretty sure it had, I can't freak out. I'm going to have to use my scarf and wrap it around my hand to stop the bleeding or like staunch it. I'm gonna have to take that dirty Tim Hortons cup and dump out the coffee with my left hand, put snow in it and pick up my thumb stump thing. And then I'm gonna have to get on the highway and I'm gonna have to drive to the hospital. Uh, which was about 20 kilometers away. And I can't freak out and I can't like cause a big accident on the highway. I have to just be super calm. So I like did that, got the keys, opened the door. My thumb was attached, but it was not in good shape. Like I <laughs> opened the door, it was just like mangled, bleeding, not good. So then I and I had a meeting with the mayor in like five minutes. That, I, that had been very hard to set up because he was very busy because there's a big manhunt going on for an armed man in the area. So I um, call my editor as I'm driving to meet the mayor. I'm like, I think I just broke my thumb. That is cool. Like I'm gonna, you know, go meet the mayor. I get into the town. I go to the pharmacy. I walk like straight back to the pharmacist and I just like slap my hand on the counter and the pharmacist like screamed. <laughs> I was like, okay, do you think my thumb is broken? And I'm like, if it is, is it okay if I don't go to the hospital for like 12 hours? And they were like, I don't know, but like, I guess so. And I was like, okay, I need, you know, Tylenol and I need some gauze. And so they got this stuff from me. Then I went to meet the mayor. Talk, I'm trying to write. My thumb is like all bandaged up, seeping bloody through the gauze. My whole oh, notebook was like drenched in blood. And as I was talking to the mayor, I guess the shock wore off. So I'm also like sweating. I can't, I should look up that mayor one day and see if they, remember this but I barely remember it so I'm like sweating I'm bleeding all over the place then you know I filed my story that night didn't miss deadline was there still for 
went to the hospital at like midnight or whatever. That was my thumb. I still have no feeling on the top of it. And then the next day was still out reporting. So, and I didn't freak out. I didn't, like, I was very calm. I was really impressed with myself. Then on that Friday night, when I finally got home and my husband and I were discussing what to have for dinner and there was something about cheese. I don't even know what the thing was. And I just like burst into tears and cried for like an hour hysterically. And he's like so perplexed. I'm like, no, 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 I don't think it's about the cheese. I think it's about the wheat. But that taught me a very valuable lesson is that, you know, um, at the time at a scene and when I'm working, it's really important for me to be calm. It helps me to be calm. I can really go into work mode. You do have a lot of feelings that may bubble up in you, including like freaking out about breaking your thumb or being afraid or like all the things that can happen um, and they do have to come out where they do you do have to process them and now I know that that happens so for instance with the Nova Scotia shooting this year um, I did a lot of the I worked pretty intensely with the team on the early days of that story um, and you know you just have so much adrenaline at the time and then a few days later I I know to expect a crash and that you know you wouldn't be like it, <laughs> I'm not the kind of person person who can do that and not feel anything you know it's really the depths of human misery and it, like it's so horrible so I just you know prepare for it and make sure that I can sort of vent it and process it and and also that I don't think there's anything wrong with that for a long time in journalism there was this idea of like you know you don't feel anything you're the hardened cop reporter who doesn't care but if you <laughs> didn't care why would you want to tell people stories why would you want to make sure that people who were killed you know that their lives were written about, that their names, you know, that their stories were told. How do you debrief after some of these uh, really hard assignments you're sent on? You know, so there's one thing that I would say is that you don't always know what's going to affect you in certain ways. And sometimes um, certain things will upset you that you didn't, you wouldn't have really predicted and other things don't upset you as much as you may have thought. Or, you know, obviously it's always upsetting to cover upsetting things. But I guess talking about being kind of upset versus more profoundly upset. But I think, you know, I don't really have a process to debrief. <laughs> There's things that I like to do. I embroider, I hand embroider um, and sew. And those kinds of things are really relaxing to me and help me to like think about things. And I, I think that may be different for everybody. Um, and I would certainly not say that everyone needs to do that. Although embroidery is a lovely hobby if anyone wants to take it up. But I think just finding something that's right for you that isn't necessary, that is is like you know a positive way to try to process a traumatic experience and I think a lot of that is really just acknowledging like okay hey that was like a really intense period and so I'm gonna like spend today going for a walk and doing my little hobby and I'm gonna you know read a novel or whatever whatever it is for you and it gets better I think if you're aware of that then then you start to become aware of like how you're feeling and, and how you're processing things I know many people who um, uh, have talked to therapists at various times because of a story they've covered that that they've really felt they needed that and um, that's definitely available too. You know, I think that the important thing is that you're no good, you know, even if we feel this work is so important and maybe there's no time to take a break or something, but, um, you know, if you burn yourself out or if you, you know, get to a position where you can't 
handle the work any longer or you're drinking too much or self-medicating in other ways, then that's really dangerous um, and that's not good for anybody. So yeah, and luckily I think we're starting to have those conversations a bit more and um, it is definitely a personal thing. You know, what works for me doesn't work for everyone, that's for sure. Everybody has their own ways of dealing with things, especially like if you're in a kind of a, I guess, a traumatic situation. Uh, everybody has their own innate ways of dealing with those, whether those are good ways or bad ways or means to be seen. I know with some of your articles, you probably weren't able to research before going and covering a story. I guess, how would you prepare yourself to go do a big story like that? Yeah, I mean, as much as you research you, as you can do beforehand, the better. I think in every story, you know, even um, if you're doing a profile or something, like I will literally use uh, using archive systems like ProQuest or newspapers.com, you know, I will go back and read every single story that's been written about the person since like dating back to the 80s, say, depending who you're writing about. So I really do believe in preparation and it just makes it so much uh, better at the scene, of course. When you're sent to something quickly, you don't always have much time, but you do often have some time. So like when I was sent to Northern BC, you know, as I was waiting for the plane, because I, I flew into Southern BC and met the photographer and we drove up. As I was waiting for the plane, as I'm on the plane, I'm just like starting to take notes, starting to get everything together because um, a story like that I'm also in some cases starting to pre-write the bottom of the story for my so when I first land there you know I can have some color from the scene but all the background I've already gathered and on a big story like that I'll make myself like um, a cheat sheet so say with the Nova Scotia shooting I did this as well any big story where I'm doing fast turnarounds so it will have proper spellings of names um, dates times proper spellings of places Places, just all of that key information that when you're writing really quickly, you might think like, oh wait, was he 55 or 56? And you don't want to have to go look that up. So I can have, it'll just be on a page of my steno, like stick it up to my computer and I have it right there. And that's one way that I think you can be really efficient so that you can spend your time better, um, you know, observing the place that you're in or trying to find people or trying to talk to people. I don't want to be like, you know, get to a scene somewhere and I'm trying to figure out how old someone is is because I can be doing that in the cab or on the plane or in the times we took cabs and planes, which I'm hoping, I'm hoping <laughs> that will come back again. So your work is often glamorized in media. Some people think that your work is basically you're pretty much a, you know, always on the on the scene, always some of the fun stuff. What would you like people to know who doesn't really know about the hard parts of your job? Well, that is that would be great news if people think <laughs> that being like a reporter is glamorous because often when the media that I notice makes us look so terrible, you know, like I watch so many things I'm like a reporter would never do that a reporter would never sleep with a source like that's not how media works like especially newspaper reporters you know we often um I think we look terrible in almost every fictional depiction especially female uh newspaper reporters so that's a big pet peeve of mine and um I often get like you know I'll be watching a movie and there's a reporter I'm like that is so I get really upset so if people are seeing it as like a good thing then that's good because there has been I think some depictions lately that are a bit more realistic and a bit more positive actually a friend of mine in the TV show oh, the TV show that was with Kevin Spacey where he played the president um, House of Cards yes 
There's a, I have a friend who's a reporter, it was a reporter in DC, and she used to work uh, covering politics. And, um, you know, that's an extremely difficult gig, even, you know, before in the years that she was doing it. And uh, very, can be a very sexist environment. And she, you know, had a lot of like issues and sort of fighting prejudices like that. So in that show, the female reporter is sleeping with her sources. And my friend Netta and a friend of hers actually went to like, a Q&A that he was doing, uh, the writer of the series, and confronted him about that. And um, in the next season, after that confrontation happened, there was a character, a very like principled Iranian reporter who was introduced as a character that I think may have been inspired by her. So um, yeah, I'm happy to see good depictions. You know, I think in a general sense, what I hope people know about the job is that I guess there is... Um, you know, the media does get a pretty bad rap at the moment sometimes, whether it's hashtag fake news or, oh, it's the corporate media or, oh, you're just trying to, you know, used to be sell papers and now it's get clicks. And um, so I think in general, I would like people to understand maybe the media a little bit more. And the media, even the term the media is so, uh, it's such a like massive term that can be used to include sort of popular culture and movies and you know, bloggers and people who work for um, legacy media, all of that. So I think um, in a general sense, just people being a bit more informed about how media works would be a good thing. But um, if people think my job is glamorous, I'm not going to complain. I think it's very glamorous. And this one ties back to what you would tell any new journalist is what sort of traits are kind of a good idea to have for this track? Yeah, that's a good question because I, I think some of the traits are not what people think. You know, a lot of uh, journalists, I'm going to say like 98 out of 100 journalists are actually very shy. And I think a lot of people would think, oh, I'm, you know, I'm shy or I'm like kind of feel nervous talking to new people. Maybe I wouldn't be a good journalist. And actually, most journalists are very shy, sometimes very socially awkward. We don't always like talking to people, you know, sometimes it takes you like a lot to like pick up the phone and call someone is not always easy but I think one of the to me the main thing that you need and that maybe you either have it or you don't is actually just you know a curiosity and interest in the world and I'm and in the people of the world and I'm not sure that's something that you can learn maybe it is but you know the people that I have met throughout my career um, you know a wide variety of personalities some people who have more or less skill in terms of writing or in terms of, you know, all of that doesn't matter because I think you can learn that. I think, um, in fact, I used to joke that, you know, to get into journalism school, they should just, you know, drive like five police cars and an ambulance by you. And if you don't turn your head to see where they're going, you don't get in. But like, <laughs> um, so I think this curiosity and wanting to know about people and figure things out and understand and like find out more, that's the key quality. And that's what makes all the best, all the great journalists that I know that's what they have and everything else you can learn and work on and improve and you're probably never going to feel less shy but you get more used to it so so technically they should almost have like a, a detective side yeah I think so like to me that's the um, that's the real like just wanting to find out or, or wanting to know wanting to share wanting to like just someone who's like well why <laughs> or where you know all of those W's I think if you're a person who just always 
has a W in your mind, then it's a perfect job for you. Because then it's like, no, it's your job to answer that question. That's what you're doing on this story. That's what you do every day is just go, you know, meet people and find out things and figure things out. And that's the best job in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Sounds like me on the daily trying to find mattresses and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Where did it go? Out of all of your experiences that have included travel for work, do you have a favorite memory? That is a good question. I mean, it's hard to say favorite because some of the, like, it's hard to say favorite because they're not always necessarily good memories. (laughs) As we talked about me, you know, breaking my thumb, you know, on the BC trip last summer, that was, that was a really incredible trip. It's so beautiful up there. I'd never been into that area. It's so desolate. Um, The story was so horrible. It was very creepy and scary, and the people that I talked to were devastated. Um, And then we, (laughs) at the end of that week that I was up there, so I was filing for the Saturday paper. And so the plan was very intense reporting, and everything is so far apart. Um, So you're, you know, for hours every day, you're out of cell phone coverage, and, you know, it's really challenging reporting conditions. So I had to file, I don't even know, it was like two in the afternoon on Friday, I had to file um, and people were other reporters were filing stuff to me other parts of the story that I would work into the main story um, so I woke up on Friday morning and um, about like three in the morning I went to bed at one in the morning had a couple hours sleep get up um, but the internet was down so all the stuff that was being filed to me couldn't come through to this lodge that we were at so we needed to get to this other town which is five hours away and so I had to write as we were driving so the photographer Raf was driving and I was trying to write and it's so bumpy, curvy. <laughs> By the time uh, we got to the name of the town escapes me uh, where I was filing from. By the time we got there, I was so carsick that I like fell out of the car, went and wrenched over a garbage can and then immediately went inside and was like, I need your Wi-Fi and um, had to call in or like filed the story and was there all day. Completely wretchedly sick doing my edits. Had to leave multiple times to um, be nauseous over a garbage can. But at the end of the day, so I filed and all the edits were done. It was about maybe six at night and there's um, some people up there that have this beautiful sauna by a lake. I love saunas. And I called them up. I said like, hi, can I pay you to come and have a sauna at your house? And they invited me. uh, to have a sauna. So I went to these total strangers, beautiful, beautiful strangers, took them some beer as a gift and they had the sauna cranked up. And then I went and jumped into like the most beautiful cold, clear lake. And it was the best feeling in the world and so beautiful. And uh, so I don't know if that's a favorite memory, but it's definitely um, definitely a pretty, uh, it's a bold memory. It's a big memory. <laughs> that sounds like an adventure and almost one that I'd, that I'd like to take. <laughs> It's very beautiful up there. I do recommend it. Maybe not under those circumstances, but it's a very, very beautiful area. It's a wonderful trip. Maybe we should just follow Jana around wherever she goes and experience these things. (laughs) I'm down for that. (laughs) Jana, you need to beg Caddy. I'm here. (laughs) Yeah, I may take you up on that one day. Hiding your suitcase or something. I don't know. be a good learning curve for you, Gina. <laughs> right? Uh, so, what do you do to add color to an otherwise bland story? 
yeah, keep reporting, I guess. Keep reporting, you know, keep talking to people. Find someone who tells you crazy, you know, has colorful way of speaking or get creative with the language, you know? Sometimes that's where some funny turns of phrase or some, you know, you can you can jazz up a story sometimes through the writing. And there's a time and place for that. Obviously, if it's a serious story, that's not always the time to like be showing off your puns. But sometimes a dry story with like a bit more color and a good quote from someone and um, you know some fun writing can go a long way. I do you know it's that saying they used to say with actors like there's no small parts there's just small actors and I do really think you know there are not many stories if any that aren't interesting and fun when you actually get into them even things you know when I worked in the country I'd be covering municipal drainage well municipal drainage is really fascinating when you get into it so yeah I think I always encourage people to be open-minded about you may find things interesting that you had no idea and uh, again I guess that kind of essential quality of curiosity that sometimes you don't think you care about whatever it is and then you start learning about it and you're like oh that is really interesting after all and then that'll give your story some some life because if you can be interested in it then you know your reader you'll probably be able to convince your reader to be interested too. What advice would you give someone that wants to do all like the fluffy top stories and be the number one writer front paid? How would you tell them that you need to work up or what advice would you recommend? I mean, for me, it was a real, um, for me, it was a good thing to work my way up and to, you know, if I suddenly have the position I had now 15 years ago, I don't think I would have done well at it. I needed to learn how to do things. So I think just not thinking that you need to have that immediately and that you're a failure if you don't immediately have that. You know, some people have this idea of like, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, be at the New York Times in two years. And then if you're not, then you feel like you failed. Or if, you know, someone else who's a colleague of yours suddenly takes a step forward and then you feel like you need to do that too. Everyone has their own path and their own um, things that they have to learn. Some people start working at the Globe straight out of school. It took me 20 years <laughs> to get there. So, but I don't regret that at all. And I'm I'm glad that that was the path for me. I'm glad to be where I am now, but I really had a lot of fun and learned a lot of things at these other places. So I think just, you know, finding your, your own path and realizing, you know, you're not going to get front page of the New York Times tomorrow. And that's okay, because um, when you do have a chance to do that, you want to make sure that you can just write the crap out of it. Like, you're when you have that opportunity if you have that opportunity you want to know that you have all of the skills to take full advantage of it and um that doesn't happen in a day takes takes a long time i mean some people might be naturally gifted i'm not naturally gifted i got i can do what i can do just from putting in a lot of hours to get here <laughs> so that's the path i know um for the naturally gifted that can just jump right in that's wonderful for you <laughs> that's not me <laughs> So if someone were, say, started a blog and wanted to make their end goal of, say, working for the Globe, would that be a good point to have all their, like, a portfolio of stuff started as a blog? Or should they just have, submit to, like, a little newspaper of some sort to a local? Yeah, I mean, I think if you, if you want to get writing experience, um, there's value to all aspects of that. You know, to, like, there is a lot of value to having bylines in publications, including 
including that you'll work with an editor sometimes, and that's different than just working for yourself, you know, and sometimes they'll give you different parameters. So you're not always just like, hmm, what would I like to write about? I'm going to write about this when you pitch a publication. In fact, um, I was in a discussion with some editors in one part of the globe of pitching a story uh, this week, and they came back and said, okay, but we'd like you to do this with it. So they're, they're looking at it in a slightly different way. And I think that's really valuable because as a writer, that makes you think, okay, well, so I was going to do it like this. Here's what the editor's telling me. How am I going to, you know, adapt that and make that work? Um, so that's valuable. But I also think, you know, writing for yourself, writing in blogs, like all of that is good writing. There's a, a piece that we are going to talk about uh, in class, uh, in the feature writing class on Monday um, for our food writing class that was written by a blogger and she was nominated for a James Beard Award, which is the most prestigious um, writing cooking award that or food writing award there is. She was up against the Washington Post uh, and the New York Times and she won a James Beard Award for a piece that she wrote on her blog. So I certainly would never say that like there's again, there's not one route for everybody and um, finding ways to develop your voice, develop your skill, develop your name that will be a little bit different for everybody, but um, it all matters and it's all practice. And, you know, that piece wasn't the first piece that she's ever written either, but she uh, got it to that point and, and it was a huge piece for her. So yeah, I definitely don't think it always has to be through a publication, but getting the widest array of experience possible to me is a real benefit, including, you know, I always thought I would want to be a arts writer and, you know, I love music, I love food, I love the arts. And coming up from small papers, you can write about all kinds of things. I'd pitch a column, they'd be like, okay, sure. <laughs> like pitch a story, yeah, sure. <laughs> And what I learned is that I actually don't really enjoy arts writing or music writing or food writing, but things like crime. I never knew that I would like crime writing. Um, I covered rodeo for for a while. I covered, you know, I wrote a humor column. So all of those things are a good way to, by being open to like seeing what you like and what you can do and what, you know, I used to write little, um, I think they were about 50 words for Flair magazine about like, gene, you know, the best genes or whatever, you know, that that teaches you a lot about yourself. I don't even know if those were bylines. They were very small. You know, they didn't, I didn't make a lot of money doing them, but I learned a lot about myself as a writer. That would be my advice. Thank you very much for that. So are there any sources or anywhere in particular where you draw your inspiration from? Well, I really believe that reading good writing is the number one way to become a better writer and reading aspirational writing. So I've always tried to read a lot of stuff that's better than what I could do to, um, I guess, just really work towards things. And the amazing thing is that you do become a better writer just by reading. I really do think you do. Um, so I love some of the great sources for non-form narrative writing, like The New Yorker, Harper's, The Washington Post, The New York Times. We subscribe to all of those. The Walrus in Canada also. You know, I read a lot of local reporting as well. Um, I follow Long Reads as a great source, you know, uh, an aggregator that shares great writing from other places. And, um, you know, it depends on one's area of interest. 
too, that finding a, a 10,000 word story, it's not the same story for everybody that'll really uh, turn your crank. But I think just looking for great writing that really speaks to you and, and voices that speaks to you, speak to you are a great way to, um, to keep developing your own voice. I don't know if you remember when you worked at the Leader Post that they had a section of under 20 where yeah. young artists used or young writers used to be um, be able to submit their articles and all that. Yeah. Uh, one of my best friends actually wrote a piece called the uh, tween tater tot. But do you believe that more um, newspapers should be able to do that to have the young people experience the art of writing a newspaper article? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think I love seeing opportunities for young people to write and also for young people to write nonfiction. I think nonfiction um, and memoir and personal stories and reported stories. I mean, it's an art form that I love. So obviously, I'm a little bit biased. But um, yeah, I think, you know, the fact that your friend recalls that fondly that you recall that about her that speaks pretty um, strongly to how powerful that can be. And um, so I think that's really good for aspiring writers to be able to use their voice like that. And also, um, you know, I think what we're seeing increasingly is that we want media that um, reflects lots of different perspectives and I think there can be a lot of value in reading something that a young person has written as well so um yeah I think I think that's a great that's a great thing people tend to really like them um well it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you Jana thank you very much for spending uh, an hour this evening uh, chatting with us if people want to look you up or get in touch with you how would they go ahead and do that well I'm very easy to find I have a website janapruden.com you can find me on twitter um, at Jana underscore Pruden. And uh, if you Google me, you'll find me. Um, once again, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a real pleasure to chat with all of you. It's been I a treat. Yeah, it, it has been amazing talking <laughs> to you. You have probably some of the best stories we've heard. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the most we've... relatable, especially those pants. Stories are what we love here, so. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just checking out your Twitter right now because you you gained a follower. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, have, I love the post that you posted like six hours ago. Some very fluffy rain in Edmonton right now. I'm like... Oh, I know about it. <laughs> we hope our listeners have enjoyed following along this episode with us. You know, as always, you know, we try to drive home, do your research when it comes to travel. We try to drive home that you might not always find yourself in the best circumstances, but you got to make do with what you've got. And I think those are the two key takeaways from this episode. And as always, for the Breadcrumb Trails podcast, I'm Gina. I'm Amy. And I'm Carol. And we bring you Jana Pruden from the Globe and Mail. And we will see you guys next episode.